On October 16, 2017, more than 100 progressive investors joined forces with the International Club of Rome and the Aquil Group to launch the investment turnaround, the investment vendor. We believe that we can all look into a bright and exciting future because we can reinvent ourselves and make our financial, business and economic systems integrally sustainable. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world leaders and role models who are already on this path and who can guide us with their advice and wisdom. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews Hazel Henderson. She's the founder of Ethical Markets Media and the creator and co-producer of its TV series. Henderson is a world-renowned futurist, evolutionary economist, consultant on sustainable development, and author of the award-winning book, Ethical Markets, Growing the Green Economy. Bitcoin uses as much energy as a country the size of Ireland. I think now that the whole green economy is actually sort of unstoppable. At least one trillion has been invested every single year uh, since that uh, climate change conference in 2009. Hazel, it's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mariana. This is a great pleasure for me. Well, thank you, because uh, we just launched the investment turnaround, as you know, and we need people like you to help um, traditional investors move to a more integrated impact investing world. So how did you arrive at being such a great force for good in the world? What happened in your life? Well, I began actually as a civic activist uh, in New York City, uh, where I was really worried about air pollution, being the mother of a young child. And um, and so I um, organized a group uh, with many friends called Citizens for Clean Air. And so I go back a long way understanding that uh, it's absolutely no use to maximize uh, the, the money returns of one's investment if you're destroying the air we breathe and uh, polluting the water we drink. And so that that basically became my lead-in to all of this. And then uh, in 1982, I was invited by the Calvert Group of uh, Socially Responsible Mutual Funds to join their advisory council and help develop the first social screens um, for their um, portfolio and looking at how best to screen companies for um, clean air and water, whether they were uh, good to their employees, and all of the, um, uh, the, the ways of measuring companies' social performance, which ended up being called, um, in shorthand, ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance uh, Standards, uh, for corporate performance. And since then, we've worked a lot with the international uh, integrated uh, reporting uh, council, uh, which has developed the whole idea that there really are six forms of capital. There's obviously traditional financial capital, but also intellectual capital, a fine, uh, the capital uh, in built structures and facilities. Then there's human capital, social capital, and of course, natural capital. So uh, basically, this model 
I think is really the future and is being picked up and used by many, many accounting groups around the world uh, that we um, work with. Um, the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants um, has uh, adopted this whole idea. And so measuring companies going forward is going to be to the extent, in the extent to which they either enhance or degrade all six forms of capital. So that is a real revolution in asset management, isn't it, Mariana? Oh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and um, I'm every year I'm looking forward to to uh, reading your newest green transition scoreboard. That is really uplifting, and it shows a positive way onto how we can move the capital and, and do good rather than get upset and frustrated with uh, existing um, structures. So tell us a little bit about how you came about to build the Green Transition Scoreboard. What exactly is it? How do you measure what and so on? Well, it all started for me when I was watching the climate uh, summits that have been taking place under the UN auspices, and uh, they were getting ready for the one in uh, Copenhagen, if you remember, and uh, that was 2009. And we had already been kind of tracking the private investments in green technologies and green sectors around the, the world. And we realized how much was going on in the private sector that even the UN and many national governments didn't really realize. And so uh, the lead up, if you remember, to the Copenhagen uh, Climate Conference uh, was a lot of hope, you know, and then it ended up being a bit of a train wreck. And the problem was, as you know, that the whole model of the Kyoto Protocols set the world up uh, in dividing the um, northern hemisphere industrial countries, tier one, and the developing countries who hadn't really done much pollution at that point as tier two. So it was sort of set up um, as, a, um, as a, a kind of a, a competitive, divisive environment. And then then it got that when all of the bureaucrats uh, got together, um, it was all about naming, blaming, and shaming. And um, that seemed to us uh, to be the wrong way of going about it. So we prepared, as we saw that whole thing emerging, uh, we prepared the Green Transition Scoreboard for the first time and um, released it about the time just before that Copenhagen uh, UN Climate Summit. And what we um, what we found and uh, put out there was that there was already 1.1 trillion dollars U.S. of private investments in uh, solar, wind, energy efficiency, um, electric vehicles, all of these new kind of technologies, LED lighting, uh, new batteries, all of the things that we had been uh, covering. And so we were able to say that, look, while all the bureaucrats are arguing and fighting um, at this summit, um, the private sector is just moving ahead. 
And so we have been um, covering that and tracking those investments ever since. And our current uh, issue, um, which is the 2017 issue, I'm just about to start uh, writing the one for 2018, but was called Deepening Green Finance. And I was just looking at the extent to which the whole development of green finance had got to the point where finance finance ministers were beginning to bear down on their um, pension fund uh, asset managers and saying, hey, are you shifting uh, toward the green economy? Because by that time, our number of green investments had uh, risen uh, to $8.2 trillion. And uh, we are perfectly sure that as I develop this next one, which will be brought out in April, um, that we will be right on track, as we have been for the last 10 years. At least $1 trillion has been invested every single year uh, since that uh, climate change conference in 2009. So I think now that the whole green economy is actually sort of unstoppable. Isn't that great news for all of us? <laughs> it's amazing. You know, when you think of all of the effects of climate change that uh, uh, we in the United States and you in Europe have been experiencing, whether it's floods or droughts or heat waves or the, you know, I mean, the terrible mudslides that killed 21 people um, in California, where we have lots of friends after the terrible fire, you know, I mean, this is really hitting home now. And uh, so we just have to make these shifts, you know, from the fossilized sectors based on 19th century and 20th century technologies to the 21st century technologies that I call the global uh, transition to the solar age. Yes. The question is, how can we help existing banking systems and economic systems move away from the for-profit-only measurement criteria to include these other criteria? Because in my view, I believe this is one of the biggest challenges. And you just mentioned new accounting methods, because up this far, people think, oh, these are soft measurement criteria. We can't really measure them, which, of course, is a lie. So the question is, how can we help move that forward at large scale, not just a few family offices who are well-meaning and moving a lot of capital, but not enough? Exactly. Well, you know, what we pointed out in the Green Transition Scoreboard, the current issue on deepening green finance, uh, we, we start off uh, with uh, really talking about the pushback uh, from traditional financial asset managers um, who have been telling Mark Carney, the head of the uh, European Central Bank, and uh, and the um, uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, who had been really pushing forward with this disclosure, this uh, climate risk disclosure model. And uh, the asset managers were saying, hey, hey, we've got to slow down this green transition. It's happening too fast. Um, we've got too much still invested in um, proven uh, oil reserves, of fossil fuels, in, in um, you know, coal and uh, oil uh, in, in, uh, investments. And we're not going to be able to make this change. And so if we go any faster, there's going to be a financial crash. And so... What uh, Mark Carney was saying, as we report um, in this Green Transition Scoreboard, 
he was saying, okay, well, look, um, we're not going to, this can't be slowed up because there's already too much money and too much investment um, in the pipeline now. And there's all of these green bonds uh, that are being oversubscribed, you know, that the IFIs are buying into. And we have been tracking the uh, uptake of green bonds uh, in our reports as well. And so uh, what I thought was, well, maybe um, if these asset managers refuse to open up their algorithms and uh, to take a look at what their assumptions are, um, then, you know, this really is, um, they're, they're going to, to lose a lot of money. And even though many asset managers have been telling their clients, oh, it's much too risky to get into these green investments, we, uh, we affirm that it's actually more risky to be on the other side, to have too much uh, still in these stranded assets. So I wrote an article which is up on our website uh, for free download, where, which was called Assessing Risks of, of, of Fossil Assets. And uh, my question was, are they fuel or feedstocks? And the point I was making is, look, okay, we can throw these um, mainstream asset managers a bone. And we can say, look, go into your algorithm and see what your assumption is. How have you characterized your fossil assets? Have you characterized them as fuel? And if you have, why don't you, just with a stroke of the pen... Uh, ch change that and call them feedstocks, which are much more valuable, um, which can be kept in the ground and used for future uh, use as um, plastics and in pharmaceuticals. You know how many applications there are uh, for, for petroleum and so on. And in that way, you won't have to write them off or write them down so far, you can carry them at a decent, if reduced, valuation. Um, and you can say to the climate change people, okay, we're keeping them in the ground and we're not burning them. And that's all the climate people are saying. They're saying, keep it in the ground. Don't burn it. It's too valuable to burn. And so I've had a lot of good feedback uh, from traditional asset managers sort of breathing a sigh of relief, saying, okay, that's what we can do. You know, it's kind of a transition uh, strategy. That's a brilliant idea. I bet these people loved, uh, loved it. Yeah, you wrote another article that I wanted to, um, a very inspiring one. One of the, I think was one of the latest articles that you wrote, Money's Not Wealth. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, our listeners, about that is. Uh, because, you know, um, I have been following all of the cryptocurrencies and uh, which really are a bubble and a lot of them are actually fraud. Um, and also um, the, the various new blockchains on which Bitcoin, the first crypto, was based. And uh, Bitcoin uh, really is a total disaster. Yes. <laughs> um, it, uses, it uses as much energy as uh, annually with all of this Bitcoin mining um, as a country the size of Ireland. 
I mean, it's totally absurd. So I had written an article a few months ago uh, with the title, Hey, COP23, uh, Bitcoin Miners, um, CO2 emissions are exploding. You're going to have to add them in to the whole climate change problem. And so basically, not only um, is uh, uh, Bitcoin, um, you know, like a thermodynamic black hole, actually, but also there's a lot of fraud going on because almost every article you read about Bitcoin or anyone who's promoting it, they use a visual of these shiny kind of gold colored coins that look so pretty. And actually, of course, it's a total fraud because there are no such thing as those coins. Um, I mean, a Bitcoin is um, is um, a string of, of digits. Um, it's a software algorithm. And um, so the whole thing um, just goes to show um, how much distrust there is in government's fiat currencies and all of the quantitative easing and the amount of money that's now sloshing around the planet um, and, and, of course, has all gone into um, asset bubbles, or most of it. So the article that I wrote, uh, uh, titled Money is Not Wealth, uh, was subtitled Cryptos versus Fiat's. And uh, I'm just trying to point out that all money is, is information. I mean, it's, it's a metric that we use to track and keep score of the real wealth of human ingenuity, human uh, transactions with natural resources. And, uh, and so it, it, it's like, um, it's just like inches and centimeters. So uh, the whole uh, thing um, is that um, we have um, been almost brainwashed uh, into thinking of these um, money units as being valuable rather than as a tracking system for what the real value in the real world is. And and that's basically um, at the root of this um, financial system and the financialization and all of the new weird financial, uh, in a, quote, innovation and, and the new instruments, you know, credit default swaps and too much securitization and all of the things that have made finance totally unrealistic. I mean, as you know, Mariana, right now there on the New York markets, there are about 6,000 index funds, but they're resting on only some 3,000 uh, companies. And so you've got all of these ETFs and, you know, it's kind of um, very much similar to what was happening before 1929. You know, the pyramiding of paper assets on the people on the ground who are doing the real production. And that's where we are today. And so um, I have not been investing my own assets in publicly traded companies uh, for some time, uh, I prefer direct investments in companies that I know and understand, and um, you know, working uh, basically uh, with early stage 
green companies whose technologies I really understand. And a lot of other people, particularly with family offices, are doing the same thing. Absolutely. That's what that's our expertise. And that's uh, those are the, the special due diligence processes that help us uh, move that capital in those directions, which, of course, is a totally different one than, um, you know, trading with in index indices or with um, publicly traded companies that tell you one thing and do another, i.e. Volkswagen and others. <laughs> Yeah. So how do you measure? How do you what is tell us a little bit about your due diligence process uh, in investing directly? Well, the first uh, the, the very first of, of my due diligence is the technology, because mm -hmm. I was a technology policy wonk in Washington for six years. Um, and and so I, I was with the National Science Foundation on committees there and the National Academy of Engineering. And so the, my expertise has been actually in the physical world. You know, I prefer the real world. So I like to look at the quality of the technology. That's the start. And then you want to look at patents and all of those things. And, but, and then, of course, um, the quality of the management and um, the integrity uh, of the management and the enterprise. And only when you've gone through those things uh, do you start looking at, well, you know, what does the cap table look like and, you know, um, uh, how many shares are they trying to sell and all of those other things. So it, it's always the real world things. And, and that is um, the ethics of the company and um, the quality of the technology. The, those are the two starting places for me. Brilliant. That's very much like we do. And as you know, in order to assess the management individuals and so on, we use Ken Wilber's integral theory that, <clears throat> that helps us really, really do a very thorough due diligence process um, by using tools from Stanford, Harvard, and MIT to really, really assess uh, the team because they can promise you all day you know that oh they're going to be ethical and they behave this and that and the other uh, but unless you really look behind the, the veil you know you won't know how much they will be able to keep their promise or only you know lip service do you have a particular model that you use to make that assessment you and I have um, exchanged ideas and uh, discussed, uh, you know, I very much uh, admire the integral model of Ken Wilbur. Uh, and I, I think that uh, I, uh, I don't uh, sort of apply that in any um, kind of, you know, consistent way in the way that you do. I, uh, I, I guess maybe for me, sometimes it's more intuitive, you know, meeting with the management people. Uh, I mean, basically, I have have um, a criterion, a personal uh, criterion, and and that is, um, I want to do business with people who um, have a broad enough uh, perspective on the 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 planet itself that we live on, our life support system. So they have to understand the biology and the uh, of the, of the uh, life support system on which we live, and how this planet operates. Uh, it gets photons every day from the sun, um, which are taken up by plankton in the sea, and they are the foundation of human food supply. And then how uh, these uh, 
uh, photons coming from the sun uh, drive um, the uh, climate. And so unless uh, people understand that context um, as part of the human condition at this point, um, that, that this is the page of the human agenda which is open before our generation, um, to make this transition based on better understanding uh, of the way the planet functions, that we have to stop digging in the ground uh, for our energy, and we have to instead look up and realize that uh, this planet runs on solar energy, and that we have to learn from plants that the first technology um, of life systems on this planet was photosynthesis, how to harvest those photons and turn them uh, through that process of photosynthesis into the basic human food supply. So and I tend to meet with um, people who would like, you know, start a new company or whatever, and I like to plumb the extent to which they actually understand um, the conditions of our survival on this planet. That's where I start. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And through those deep, deep conversations, you kind of identify, you know, whether they meet it or not. Or Yes, you know, and you can tell there's no way people can fake that knowledge. Either they know that this stuff and can respond to questions like that intelligently. I mean, do they actually subscribe to the laws of thermodynamics is, a, is one for me. See, a lot of economists do not subscribe to the second law. <laughs> you know this. Yes. <laughs> uh, <you> know. <laughs> it's so complex for most people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it, for me, it's as fundamental as that, you know. Um, to to just see if they actually have the basis, however clever they are, you know, with their financing or however clever they are with their technology um, on at the micro level. Um, eventually, uh, whether the company is going to succeed in the long run, you know, you can't violate the laws of, of physics and thermodynamics. Right? Absolutely. Well, it bites you. And this is what's actually happening, you know, even on a on a large planet like ours, yeah. So yeah. So what 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 specific and most treasure advice would you give uh, give investors or audience moving forward? People who really want to learn from you, move uh, their assets the same way you do. Uh, you just mentioned that you know we are basically in a similar situation like 1929 before the big crisis. So what would you your recommendation be moving forward? Well, uh, first of all, um, the, going back to that article I wrote on money is not wealth, um, the bottom line there is when people actually understand that and the real world wealth is something quite different from those money units, you know, which are the metrics, then they, they also would understand that you can't make money out of money. And they should look at their asset managers or their consultants or advisors. And to what extent are they being told that it's possible to make money out of money? And too much asset management right now um, is about that. And what's fundamentally wrong with that, as you know, Mariana, is that uh, money cannot really be um, a store of wealth, 
money is a good um, unit of value for exchange if it's properly managed and is backed by real assets. Um, but um, because it, you have to, if our government's inflating it and all of the, those kind of issues, but it's a big shock to a lot of asset managers if their clients actually understand that that just keeping cash, you know, this whole idea you've got lots of dry powder, as it were. We've got all this money that's kind of overhanging the markets right now. Nobody knows what to do with it. Well, um, you know, um, it, it, if they realize that money units or whatever the currency is uh, cannot be a reliable store of value. And what that says is, hey, you better look at that portfolio and shift um, your assets, your money, into this future economy, which is being built as we speak, whether it's a building green infrastructure, um, like LED lighting for your town, saving um, hundreds of thousands of whatever currency it is, um, whether it's going to composting, um, whether it's, you know, all of these very fundamental things, whether it's going to electrified mass transit um, or um, investing your community in putting um, solar-powered electric vehicle chargers in all of your parking lots and uh, 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 along with your gas stations. Um, those are the kind of very practical sort of things that people should be looking at uh, shifting their uh, money units into. Because only when you shift money units into uh, into real-world uh, technologies and real-world assets to build this future green economy based on the, sustain, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, um, are you going to really uh, be able to preserve your capital? It'll be much more natural capital, and uh, it'll be the kind of capital which is intellectual capital, human capital, social capital, uh, not just finance. Money for the sake of money. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work in the long run. You can play that game for a while, but there's too much knowledge now. You see, that that's really um, the lesson we're learning from cryptocurrencies. Everybody's actually learning the lesson um, about money not being wealth. They're learning that right uh, as we speak. Um, where they see all of these cryptocurrencies bouncing up and down and, uh, and you know, uh, uh, central banks going into all of this uh, quantitative easing and then trying negative interest rates and all of the games they're playing right now. You know, they're beginning to realize, oh, I see. Uh, we have to actually go back to the real world and, and look at, uh, you know, look on the ground at real people real high-quality, talented people interacting with real resources. Yes, that's why we speak within the context of the investment turnaround, you know, following the energy vendors, the, uh, we call it in Germany, we call it the investment vendor, the investment turnaround based on real assets, uh, what we call it in yeah. German, Realwirtschaft. 
And that's absolutely the key. I couldn't agree more with you. So within this context, I, I was just curious, and we've passed our time. We, uh, you know, been kind enough to give me 30 minutes now, but I am so curious what you take on it, uh, on the exponential tech and artificial intelligence and all these modern technologies uh, coming up within the context of of building future wealth and sustainable wealth and real assets? Well, it's all about looking in, inside those algorithms. And I mean, if our lives are going to be run by algorithms, we had better start monitoring those algorithms a lot more carefully than we are. And, um, you know, I think the reevaluation that's happening right now and Facebook and Twitter, and we're realizing, you know, that um, literally 40% of, of everything on Twitter is Russian bots um, uh, trying to mess up the election here in the U.S., uh, and 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 the same thing with Facebook. You know, we've got to tighten up on all of these things. You, you know, you you just cannot have your your life run by algorithms that you don't really check and monitor for those assumptions. And I have um, I have an article on that, and another one too that people might enjoy called the idiocy of things. Yeah, I read that. It's amazing. Yes, great article. <laughs> So, so where can people learn uh, go to, to learn more about your work? Oh, just come to ethical markets, all one word, plural, ethicalmarkets.com. And everything on there, uh, they can roam around. Everything on there is free and downloadable. And um, and if anyone wants to uh, to con- get in touch with me personally, uh, please um, email me at hazel.henderson at ethicalmarkets.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and uh, amazing, wise insight and your positive, uplifting message. And I'm, I'm just so so thrilled to to call you my friend. And thank you for being on, on our advisory board and uh, looking forward to your next um, Green Transition Scoreboard. Thank you so much, Hazel. Have a wonderful thank day. Thank you, Mariana. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. If you enjoyed this interview, visit hazelhenderson.com to find out more about her work. For further information on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.